Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone and wicked good podcast. This podcast primarily is about classic pro wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And today we're going to be taking questions from our Facebook group about pro wrestling in the summer of 1983 to discuss our Facebook group. Let's bring in our semi-regular co-host, Steve Generelli. Steve, how you doing? Doing great, John. It's good to be back. And I also wanted to plug our uh, Facebook group uh, as far as what's going on there, the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group. Uh, They talked about uh, Chris Benoit's son on AEW Collision. Uh, We also talked about the most underrated color commentators from days gone by. And and also, it uh, was mentioned, uh, sadly, the 35th anniversary of the murder of Bruiser Brody. I got a phone call at like two in the morning, like the day after he died, but it wasn't news yet. And I'm just like, uh, believe it or not, I was up, which believe it or not is, is surprising. And, you know, it was one of my friends from California. He's like, you're not going to believe this. Have you heard the news? I'm like, what news? He's like, well, you haven't heard it then. And yeah, Bruiser Brody had been, and we didn't have the details. We just knew he died in Puerto Rico. We didn't know, what happened. Now, I'll tell you what, Steve, before we bring on our guest, I want to tell you something happened to me for the, for the second time in four weeks, and I fell for it both times. It's like four in the afternoon, and I'm here in the condo, and I'm like, wow, it's a weekday, and, and someone's having a barbecue at like three in the afternoon. And it's like, no, that once again, we have the, the smell and the taste of the Canadian wildfires down here. Oh. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. And like the sun is behind this weird haze and it's like, oh man, the air quality once again hitting the pavement. But hopefully everything is well for the people who actually have to deal with that up in Eastern Canada. Yeah, it's, it's, I know it's, it's affecting a lot of the East Coast, but uh, yeah, hopefully a lot of our uh, listenership up in the Great White North, hopefully uh, they're safe and sound and able to enjoy Absolutely. our show. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, just search John McAdam, follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. And before we get rolling, I want to thank Rob Raines for his generous contribution to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. If you would like to d- uh, donate to this ad-free, totally free podcast. Just go to PayPal and donate to ProWrestlingArchives at gmail.com. For the first time, I'm going to have two guys with the same first name on our show returning to the guest chair. is none other than Steve Crawford. Steve, how are you? I am doing great. It's always a pleasure to be on the Stick to Wrestling podcast. So looking forward to a <laughs> wicked good hour. It's definitely going to be a wicked good hour. And another reason you should join the Facebook group is sometimes we have shows where it is exclusively questions from the stick to wrestling universe and that's what we're doing today the focus is on the summer of 1983 which is 40 years ago and steve i'd like you steve i'm, I'm gonna be having a hard time with this the whole podcast steve crawford i would like like to for you as the guest to pick the first question okay thanks uh i think i think this question was submitted by ron wayne and it says what happens to the wwf USA Network deal is Southwest Championship Wrestling is able to pay their bills and keep <laughs> any type of manure off their TV. <laughs> so, so basically, you know, 
if Southwest Championship Wrestling stays on USA, what happens? Um, I, I I don't think that there was really any future for Southwest Championship Wrestling. And, the, you know, I, I watched the show. I enjoyed the show. It was all new talent to me. So I always enjoyed seeing new new wrestlers, new environments. Uh, so it was nothing against the show itself. The only major city they had was San Antonio. And they tried to go into Houston, and it was a miserable failure. And so, you know, it's basically San Antonio and spot shows in places like Lubbock and Wichita Falls and Odessa, Texas. And, you know, they're just what, you, you know, they're, they're not big money cities. So there was no way unless they were able to expand and where are they going to go? You know, they're not going to compete against the Von Ericks in Dallas. They tried Houston. It didn't work. I don't think they could have gone to Oklahoma and competed against Watts. So I, I just don't think that there was any path forward for Southwest championship wrestling, even, even though I enjoyed the product when I got to see it, I, I just don't see how they could have gone and expanded anywhere. Steve Generelli, what are your thoughts? Well, I like his answer, and uh, I'll, I'll add to that that I think that the WWF would have uh, overpaid for the time slot, uh, even if they, uh, even if Blanchard's company had kept their nose clean. Uh, I think he would have overpaid for it, like he did with some of the syndicated shows and in markets throughout the country. And I think if he had done that, uh, USA may have kept. Blanchard show on late, late at night, maybe 2 a.m., something like that. Maybe both shows would have been on, but uh, Vince would eventually get what he wanted and he would have had a, a start in USA just like it ended up happening. Yeah, you know, as, as Steve, as you were saying that, you know, maybe they would have made, moved to a late spot. Like without knowing this, I'll almost guarantee you Vince McMahon would have said no to that. He would have been like, you know, he would have said that, you know, hey, let's have an exclusive partnership with USA Network. Sure. He would, you know, that um, th- those are the words I'm sure he would have used too. And, you know, he was just always very hesitant to share with any other station. I remember in 1990, NWA World uh, Worldwide Wrestling was put on Channel 56 in Boston right after the WWF show. And Vince, who had been on Channel 56 forever, like 20 years they'd been on Channel 56, he, he right away went to Channel 25. I mean, like immediately. He was not going to share even that one market, uh, Boston, with anybody else. So I think, you know, I think Vince would have come across much as a much more big time promoter than Joe Blanchard. That's not a knock to Joe Blanchard. Um, but I think, you know, Vince came across as, you know, a, a more sophisticated businessman, but there's one thing I wanted to touch on this, this question. I like this question. You know, what if they're able to, to pay their bills and stay on if I'm Joe Blanchard now, this is with 40 years of hindsight. Okay. So, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not like, you know, the guy who was the expert in 1983. If I'm Joe Blanchard, I'm trying to get financing for Southwest Championship Wrestling. And we'll we'll be talking more about cable as as this episode goes on. But if I'm Joe Blanchard, I am trying to get financing for that show because I'm saying, look, you know, this show does great ratings. If I can get more talent, if I can get a, a... upgrade on my production which you know that was desperately needed i think i can get something going here uh that was his only chance to get outside financing and it was 
always hard to get that for pro wrestling. I mean, you know, Bill Watts folded because he couldn't get anyone to buy his company until until Crockett bought it, and he was ready to fold. I mean, you know, it was basically it was hard to to sell a wrestling company, but that was Joe Blanchard's only chance. He would have needed outside financing. Uh, Steve Generelli, can you pick a question for us? Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Scott Miller, and Scott is asking. Was it always the plan for Tito Santana to have a run with the IC title? When did he and Morocco know? Uh, so my answer would be, I, I would imagine the original plan would be that Snuka would win the IC title for Morocco at some point, maybe during the historic cage match. But when Snuka had those uh, outside the ring uh, you know, issues that came up, I, I'm sure at that point Vince realized I don't want to put the belt on this guy, either belt. And uh, and then he had to look for other people. And Santana was coming in right around the, the end of 83 or start of 84. And he had had a great run in New York before where he was a tag team champion and had some good stuff going on in the uh, AWA. And uh, and they needed a nice, uh, you know, a Spanish star to, to have a good run. And, so I think at that time, it was just like a no-brainer to go with the young guy, Tito Santana, give him a chance, and I think it worked out uh, magnificently. Steve Crawford, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, you know, in, in terms of what was planned, I, I really wouldn't have any idea on what was planned. Uh, I was always a big fan of Tito Santana. I thought he was a really solid in-ring performer, really good babyface, worked well with everybody. Uh, you know, I, I think that he did a really good job as intercont you know, with the championship. So I think it was a good call, and uh, I think it worked out well for the promotion and for Tito, it, because he, he stayed on for a number of years after that, and, and was always in a good position. Yeah, Scott. Uh, I mean, he asked, "Was it always the plan for Tito Santana to have the run with the title? And when did he and Morocco know?" I, I don't think it was the plan from the get go, and I say that because of the re the way Tito Santana was booked. He was not booked as a superstar. He uh, went to a 20-minute a, a draw with Iron Mike Sharp at Madison Square Garden, and I knew about that because I read about the result in one of the New York papers. So it didn't feel like he was getting that push. And I think, you know, the WWF kind of has a reputation as being this, uh, oh, everything's so planned out in advance. They knew what they were doing for WrestleMania of uh, five, you know, at, at SummerSlam 89, or excuse me, SummerSlam 88. <laughs> and it wasn't always that way. I, uh, be, you know, before in the early to mid 80s, it really felt like the WWF was putting things together on the fly. And I'm just speculating here, but I have the feeling that Morocco, you know, he, he this was his second uh, winter of 1984, 83-84 was his second winter in the Northeast in a row. And I'm sure he just wanted to go home to Hawaii. And I wouldn't be surprised if he just said, you know, Vince, get this title off me. I wanted to take a vacation for a while. And he wound up doing exactly that. That makes a lot of sense. I think they just call an audible and, and Tito was there and he was uh, – you know, the right man, the right uh, space, and uh, it worked out perfectly. I think Tito Santana is an excellent example of a wrestler being elevated by a title. And that's sometimes that's what you want. Sometimes a, a wrestler elevates the title, and sometimes it's the other way around. And this time it worked out magnificently. You know, if you had told me uh, middle of 1983 that Tito Santana would be headlining Madison Square Garden defending the Intercontinental Championships uh, in 19. 
1984 and 1985 would have told you you're nuts. But, you know, I mean, the belt got him over. It was great. Well, John, why don't you uh, have a question and pick one? All right, I'll tell you what. I'm going to pick two because they're similar, okay? Uh, Christian Body asked, did World Class ever push for a national cable channel? And then Nick Minucci says, 1983 saw cable really starting to make a difference in accessibility, speeding the demise of some territories. Which smaller areas do you think could have had a strong, stronger future had they embraced the reach of cable? Um, I'm going to answer the last part of Nick's question. I mean, if if I could come from the future, okay, if I could go from 2023 to 1983 and sit down with a, a wrestling promoter, you know, whoever it is, J- Jim Crockett, Bill Watts, uh, Jerry Jarrett, Don Owen, whoever, I would have told him, hey, this is the message. This is the message from the future. You need to get on cable now, or you need to get out of business. Because anyone who's not doesn't have cable within the next three or four years is going going to be a dinosaur. And if you think about how strong Bill Watts' territory was, he had a little bit of a down 83, but he had a strong 84 and a strong 85. And then 86, you know, the economies, you know, hit the pavement. I mean, if you had told me in 1985, hey, in, in two years, UWF is going to be gone, I would have been stunned. I, I, I wouldn't have known that in 1985, but... Now, today, I know that the demise was inevitable because if you weren't on national cable within the next like two or three years after this summer, you were toast. So that's one thing I would say. Uh, another exam- another answer for Christian's question, I mean, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And I never really thought about it, but I mean, world class absolutely should have been pushing hard to be on a national cable uh, station, you know, they needed the programming. He had a top flight promotion and type, top, excuse me, top flight production values within his wrestling program. So, I mean, it was like, you know, the, the peanut butter never hit the chocolate because that was just a, a thing that <laughs> should have happened, but never did. And I, I get it. I get that Fritz was older and he wasn't embracing the, the changes in the world. But Fritz had the money to do it if he really wanted to. He just didn't see the future coming. And, you know, like I said, neither did I. I'm not saying uh, that I did. Steve Crawford, any thoughts on these questions? Yeah, I I really, when I thought about it, the first thing I thought about is the production values aspect of it. Because if you're a casual viewer in 1984, you know, the WWF just got so far ahead of everybody else in terms of production values that everything else looked second rate, except Dallas. Dallas was the only company that really had, you know, they had their own style. It was different than the WWF style, uh, but they had very good production values. And so I think, you know, uh, they're in one of the biggest markets in the country. You know, you also have San Antonio and Houston, which are huge markets. And and they could have, you know, got a foothold in those cities, working with Paul Bosch and, just taking over San Antonio and, and then, you know, then, then they, they have the leverage to partnership with other people and expand. But yeah, I think if, if they would have had the vision to get on cable 
and and to grow that promotion and expand that promotion. I, th- I think that's the only place that really had a chance to do it. You know, Steve Generelli, uh, to cut in front of you, I just wanted to say something really quick. I remember the first time in 1980, not the 80s, but the year before 1981, I saw studio wrestling for the first time. It was the old Southeast Championship Wrestling uh, that was on that Lars Anderson show. And I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Like you're in this little TV studio with about 100 people and I thought it was great. I thought it was something very different. And then, you know, TBS had the same thing. And, you know, you, the fans would sometimes, like, break out, like, uh, doing a chant, like you'd hear a, a college football game, right? And I thought that was great. I thought it was fantastic. But if you're, if you're seriously looking to move your television, you've got the WWF, which is showing you wrestling matches that are taking place in front of a very large audience. And you, then you have the world class and their production. And once again, it's a big building and it's full and it's full of excitement. You just can't have studio wrestling anymore. I, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. It has, <laughs> to, it has to look major league, but Steve, what are your thoughts on that question? Well, um, very briefly, World Class was on the Christian Broadcasting Network. I don't know how long they were on there. It may have been just a few months. Uh, but When was that? It, 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 I know Bugsy McGraw was there. And oh, that's I 82 think, then. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it, 82 sounds right about right. And, uh, but, but, you know, they needed to be on a sports channel. I mean, you, you can't be just like a, on a different type of a network like that. And, and the thing that I, that, this kind of confounds me as you look back on these old promotions. You had uh, Joe Blanchard on the USA Network. You had Vern on ESPN eventually. But one thing that those promotions never really did, and I think they really dropped the ball. Like if you remember Vince's show, like in say 1985, uh, whether it was TNT or Primetime Wrestling, they would always have those inserts where Howard Finkel would say, you know, the World Wrestling Federation is on tour. And they would have the, you know, these show these tractor trailer trucks and they'd say, hey, they'd be in Arizona and Bloomington and you know, mention a rattle off all these cities. But when uh, ESPN had Vern and Blanchard was on USA before, they never really talked about, hey, we're having a live event here or rattle off all these different cities. And I think they really had a great opportunity that they just never really took advantage of. That's right. Uh, Jim Crockett Promotions used to do that on WTBS. Matter of fact, Georgia Championship Wrestling did that on WTBS. And you're right. You know they they needed to make sure that you know if you're a fan watching on TV and hey, you know we're coming out there a half an hour drive from where you are, you know come see us. And right. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, cable, we didn't know it was coming, but it was going to be a game changer when it came to everything, including and especially pro wrestling. I mean, turn the game upside down. And I've mentioned this before. I mean, I think Terry Funk is one of the smartest wrestling people around. And, you know, he was telling me and a few other people, he came home to Amarillo one afternoon in 1979. Okay. And, you know, he's going through his cable and he sees Georgia Championship Wrestling is now viewable in Amarillo, Texas. And he calls Dory and he says, we got to sell the territory. He (laughs) saw what was coming. And, you know, well, it was Terry's gain and Dick Murdoch's loss. But uh, Steve, Steve Crawford, can you pick a question for us? Okay, there were a few um, Starcade oriented questions. Uh, So I'll take one of those. This one's from uh, Jamie Waldrop. 1983 brought the debut of the Road Warriors. Also, Summer was billed to Starcade 83. Should the Warriors been used as hardly racist hitmen to collect the bounty on Flair 
So they could have had a significant match on one of the original super cards. And, you know, my, my answer to that is no, because, you know, you, you wanted the heat on the hills for that whole bounty angle to be somebody in your territory. So you could get with revenge within the territory. But but it does bring about the broader question, you know, Georgia and Ole and the Crockett's should have figured out sooner they needed a working relationship. And if they would have been trading more talent and, you know, co-promoting more cities and, and moving in unison, that would have just helped each party. And instead, you know, 1983, Ole's pushing, you know, killer Tim Brooks mm-hmm. and Larry Zabisco, and it's just not working. And, uh, you know, maybe there were personality clashes probably between the two or whatever, but uh, I don't think the road warriors should have been involved in, in just, Hey, we're going to send these guys up from another territory to this bounty angle. Uh, but I do think they should have figured out, Hey, you know, Oli's got the cable. We've got the talent. We've got these major cities. We need to start working together. I think they should have, gotten to that path you know steve it's funny i mean to me that sounds good on paper but you always need that one person in charge and you know i just don't think that you know these partnerships in pro wrestling are ever destined to work out and you're right you know crockett had the talent Oli had the cable you know you think you put those two things together but to me if i'm crockett i'm like you know i'm I'm pulling a michael corleone on him which is like uh how much to buy you out Oli? (laughs) yeah exactly exactly come up with a price yeah i mean and and that would have been best for everybody um but instead Oli just went down with the ship but he didn't know the ship was going down the the ship was stolen from in the middle of the night (laughs) so <laughs> you know, he he was not Terry Funk and being forward looking. <laughs> That's for sure. Steve Generelli, your thoughts on this? Um, well, I think as far as Jamie Waldrop's idea, I think visually it's a great idea. You know, having the Road Warriors appear there it would have been a really great for the fans. But uh, yeah, my thinking is that these promotions in general were uh, less inclined to give a newcomer like the road warriors a newcomers a, a key spot on a show like that just because they wanted to go with a proven commodity whether it was slater and orton or whoever but uh yeah i think they were just afraid of using new people that maybe the general public would have known of yeah and you have to realize too that the the road warriors were still green as grass number one uh and only you know only's georgia promotion also had a thanksgiving show uh thanksgiving 1983 so i mean i i just I, what i'm saying is i think orton and slater did just fine in the role as the guy that the guys that only uh that only that harley race put in for the bounty i think you know i wouldn't have changed anything quite frankly right all right. Steve, I think it, is it your turn to pick a question, Steve Generelli? Yes, it is. Yes, it okay. is. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll follow Steve's lead. I'll go with another uh, Starcade-related question here. Uh, let's see. So I'm going to go with Lawrence Miles' question. Uh, he says, was race the right choice to win the belt from Flair? It was only to set up Starcade. And my answer to that would be, you know, if Jim Crockett wanted to give Ric Flair a definitive win to start a new title reign or a new era where Flair would be the face of the promotion, would be the face of the NWA, 
I mean, who better than Harley Race, the cornerstone of the late 70s, early 80s NWA, to be the person that he beat? That's that's my take on it. Yeah, this is this is the other Steve, Steve Crawford. And, and I 100% agree with that take. To me, that was a generational change victory. You know, I viewed Harley Race as kind of the 70s style champion, the guy that didn't have the bodybuilder physique that, that looked like a truck driver but could <laughs> knock you out with one punch if you crossed him. And then you had Flair, who was, you know, so flashy, so charismatic. You know, if, if you look at a promo they sent into a new town to defend the title, just worlds apart in, in tone and style. And, and I think that was the right person for Flair to make that kind of generational change switch to. You know, my, my take on it is, you know, it's almost two questions in one. Was race the right choice to win the belt from Flair? I mean, in a vacuum. My answer is absolutely not. I thought Harley Race, you know, I was tired of Harley, Harley Race being the NWA champion. That's not a knock on Harley. It's just he had had it long enough. Um, I would have, you know, definitely have put Greg Valentine in that spot. I would have definitely put Dick Slater in that spot ahead of Harley Race. But wait, there's part two of the question. If it was only to set up Starcade, in that case, the Harley Race was perfect. Because you put the belt on him for about six months. Everyone already knows who he is. You don't have to, hey, introducing Dick Slater, who's never been to world-class championship wrestling. You don't have to do anything like that. So, you know, with that, if it was to set up Starcade, and it was, you know, race could have been a, a better choice. At the same time, I, I mentioned this on a recent show, at the time, even to this day a little bit, I don't like the idea of the NWA championship being used as a prop for one promotion supercar. That's not the way the NWA was supposed to ride, and I, I kind of got that vibe as soon as I saw it, and there was just no way Ric Flair wasn't winning that title. So it's, it's almost like you're, you're taking... A, a title that belongs to so many different territories and you're using it for the purposes of one of those promoters. And I just wasn't down with that. And a couple of people weren't, I mean, Ole Anderson, you know, I've mentioned this before. I was a little bit confused because they mentioned the NWA championship changing hands uh, on world-class. They, they went out, out there right away and Georgia, it was not mentioned until October. So right there, you know, there's a lot of cracks in the NWA's foundation, and, you know, that's a problem. I mean, if Ole Anderson is is unhappy enough with Harley Race as, as the champion, and he's the guy with the national cable, and he's not talking about it, you've got a problem you need to fix. That is a huge problem. And poor Lawrence, he has a one he has a one sentence question. I go off on that rant. <laughs> Ah, all right. I'll tell you what. Let's go with Pete Pingle. Why was the belt taken off Flair so soon? Did the powers that be not like the job he was doing? And if so, why did they put it back on him? Um, I am once again. I'm speculating here. I know. I know. Rick Flair said that in general, the promoters were not happy with him the first time around. And when I read that in his book twenty years ago, I was taken aback because you know now it's twenty years later, and I never heard. Uh, that there were problems with Ric Flair as NWA champion. But again, I think they, they took it off him so soon. 
again, they, they, I think Rick wanted to take some time off and they wanted to build up the Starcade. They had the, uh, the road to Greensboro, which was a huge success. And I'm sure Jim Crockett said, okay, what's the biggest thing I can do to have a, a giant super card and put it on closed circuit. Aha. Thanksgiving night. I'll have a, a show where in, in North Carolina, where, where it's all but guaranteed Ric Flair is going to win his title back. Uh, Steve Crawford, your thoughts on this question. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of the old the, like Sesame street game. Like one of these things are not like the <laughs> other. <laughs> so I'm thinking about Dory Funk and, and Jack Briscoe and Harley race and Ric Flair. So, so which one of those is not like the other, right? right. So, <laughs> is completely different. So, again, it was it was taking, you know, the title from from these, you know, technicians, these guys that had a reputation as as being legitimate, you know, quasi shooters, tough guys, and and putting it on somebody who was flashier more than a showman, and and so some of those promoters may not have been ready for that change at that point in time. So I, I don't know if that played in it or not. Um, you know, I, I didn't see Flair regularly until uh, I got Georgia Championship Wrestling in 1982. And, and you know, I, I just always thought he was tremendous. But I wasn't coming from the viewpoint of seeing the champions in the 70s regularly. You want to hear, you guys want to hear something ridiculous. I, I get WTBS for the first time, October 3rd, 1981. And the first show I see, you know, Ric Flair comes out wearing a suit and he's the new NWA champion. I'm blown away by this news, right? And I start to wonder to myself, is he going to wear the belt over his robe or underneath his robe? That's how ridiculous I was in 1981. And we had the answer. It was under the robe. But Ric Flair kind of proved something. Like, I think in an alternative universe, like Stan Hansen could have been an effective NWA champion in the 80s. I think Bruiser Brody could have, too. Now, they are both very different than the traditional NWA champions, but so was Ric Flair, and Ric Flair was immensely successful. So I think, you know, like Steve said, you know, one of these things is not like the other, but the wrestling business is changing quickly. And, you know, I don't think a Gene Kaniski type would have gotten over as, as the NWA champion in the 80s. Steve Generelli, let me get your thoughts. Well, uh, I'll just say that, that, you know, with Sam Rushnick had left the NWA uh, January of 82, and I think that just really threw everything into the blender, so to speak. Uh, you know, the remaining NWA promoters uh, were just all, you know, n- n- not in any kind of a teamwork of, hey, you know, let's do the best for the company or let's do the best for the NWA brand. Uh, they're all like fighting for their own little piece. And, you know, I think the belt, uh, it, it just, the, the belt wasn't as solid as, I guess, under Mushnick or Mushnick had a lot more, you know, uh, management of the other promoters and he had his own point of view. And I think now, uh, you know, it was kind of like whoever's the strongest promoter will survive. It was going to be Jim Crockett or whoever. And, uh, it, you know, and I think in the, in the next few years, you'd see like when Kerry won the belt, I mean, that was, uh, the influence of uh, you know Fritz and trying to make good on the promise to David, but you know pretty soon it's just going to become a company title. I mean, sure they called it the NWA belt, but it's essentially the Jim Crockett promotion belt. Honestly, no, that's that's what it became right around 1986. Lou Kippelman has done a run-in. Wasn't there also <laughs> a spite factor? 
a spite factor in giving Harley Race a seventh title reign to beat Luthez's record. Thez was in Southwest at the time, giving his original title to the winner of the world title tournament. And I had never, Lou, I'd never thought of that before, but thank you for that. My initial reaction, though, is if, if I am talking to another, if I'm an NWA promoter, right, and I'm talking to another NWA promoter, and he's like, hey, let's put the belt on Harley Race for a few months because that'll show Luthez for getting on Southwest and doing that. I'd be like, get this guy out of the room. We're not going to build a business around that. But at the same time, I can't discount it. And maybe if Flair needed time off and maybe if they needed an opponent for him for Starcade, maybe that gets factored in. Steve, uh, st- <coughs> excuse me, Steve Generelli, what do you think? Well we, well, we know how petty these guys could be yes. and how kind of uh, outrageous they could be. And uh, that, that could definitely be, Lou's point could definitely be true. Uh, and we don't know if it is true, but I could definitely believe it happening for sure. Well, Steve Crawford, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, at one point you say that just sounds so petty that would never happen. And on the other hand, it's professional wrestling, mm-hmm. so you, know, <laughs> you just you know, so you never know. Yeah, and I'm, the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm like, you know, if you're having a meeting and you're like, okay, who's the best guy? Harley Race. I mean, you know, he's dependable. You know, he's been everyone who knows who he is. And by the way, that'll sock it to Luthez. Like that, I could totally say. <laughs> All right, whose whose turn is it? Steve is Steve Crawford. I think so. Uh, let's. I'll take a, a WWF question for me and Totten. Was summer nineteen eighty three a missed opportunity to get the belt off Backlund and onto someone like Valentine, Morocco, or Snuka? So I, I I'll just you know from my perspective, I I don't know exactly when I started watching WWF, but we started getting some of those. Madison Square Garden type shows in the early 80s on, on some of the cable networks. And it was so different from the Southern wrestling that I grew up on Memphis wrestling, which was very fast paced, very brawling. Uh, you know, it, it moved so much slower. There were so many non finishes. And from from my perspective, is like this just wasn't as exciting. And, and Backlund is a guy holding the world title. Uh, you know, I was used to to guys like Jerry Lawler who could really talk, or you know, some, some of those people. And uh, you know, he just really didn't have that sort of charisma to me to be a world champion. So I, I think Morocco would have been a fantastic choice. I think Morocco was, you know, he just was a ruthless heel when when he worked in a heel, you know, at that time period. And you know, he he. They had a great body, you know, the physical charisma. He was a good interview. I mean, I just think he had everything that he would have been a very good world champion as you transitioned into something else as you're expanding your territory. Steve Generelli, what are your thoughts? Box office with Backlund uh, is the champion uh, was still excellent in 83. I, there was really no real specific reason or, or reason to make the change happen. Uh, I think that the iconic changes that they did end up doing, like Hogan beating the Iron Sheik, maybe those iconic title changes wouldn't have been so iconic if they had more of these kind of random title changes, like say if Morocco had beaten Backlund and he would have had to lose and and lose it to the Sheik and you know on and on. So maybe 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 less is more is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but Morocco wouldn't wouldn't have had to lose to the Sheik. Uh, you could have had the belt on Morocco for a year and then have Hogan beat Morocco. 
Yeah, true. But I mean, I think I think how it worked out in real life, having the Sheik uh, become the champion at the time where you know, people hated him so much, and and then have Hogan beat him, and then uh, have the Sheik uh, former champion against Slaughter. I mean, that seemed like a perfect scenario. No, I can see that. I mean, and to answer that question, I mean. There's two ways to answer it, okay? Was, you know, should they have taken the belt off Backlund? Well, the WWF was doing gangbuster business in 1983. So looking at it from that perspective, they did the right thing, keeping the belt on Backlund. But as someone who was a WWF fan who grew up in this area, I would have enjoyed life a lot more if Morocco had won the WWF championship in, say, January, February 1983, had that superstar Billy Graham type run as the heel with the title, and then and I think it would have made money as well. I think they would have continued drawing with Morocco as champion as opposed to Bob Backlund. And then you have Hogan beat Morocco for the title after, you know, finally Hogan's the good guy that after all the other good guys couldn't do it is the guy who beats Magnificent Morocco. And then a year later, you, tra- you turn Morocco babyface, and he has a successful run in, in that in that regard. So, I mean, I think the way they did it worked. And Steve Generelli, you and I have talked about this before. I mean, the WWF was still doing great business in 1983 with Bob Backlund as champion, but I really think that that ice was beginning to thaw. And I think that at some point, and at some point soon, the crowds, you know, they had already started turning on Bob Backlund, and I think that would have impacted the box office sooner than later. Yeah, as a fan, I agree with both of you that uh, had Morocco become champion, my interest in wrestling would have really gone up a few notches, and I would have enjoyed it a lot more. So I'm definitely in the same uh, camp with both of you. And, you know, and I can't deny that what they did worked okay when you know having Backlund lose to the Sheik and having Hogan win the title 28 days later it worked so you you don't want to change what works but you know strictly speaking from a fan's standpoint in that seat that I would have I would have enjoyed seeing Morocco Absolutely. And I think it's my turn for a question. So uh, I'm going to go with uh, Nolan Nolan Lake. And this is one that we can really uh, chew on for a while. He says, uh, the world champions in summer 83 were Bachwinkle, Backlund, and Race. Which one of the big three was in most need of a change of champion? So kind of ties in with our last question a little bit. I, I think it's funny that this question really uh, – <laughs> you know, as far as what, what happened, I mean, all three of them were replaced pretty soon. I mean, Backlund would lose in December. Uh, Bachwinkle, I think, would lose in early 84. And Race would lose at, at Starcade. So, uh, but to a- try to answer the question, I guess I guess I would just go with Bachwinkle just because, you know, the NWA was on its course to becoming really, you know, Jim Crockett Promotions champion, you know, with them running and wanting to have Flair on top and maybe Dusty periodically. Uh, Vince had his own thing planned and it, that worked out fine. But the AWA had a, had an opportunity to try to go with Hogan uh, if that was feasible or go with a different champion. They ended up going with uh, guys like Martel and Jumbo Saruta. Uh, but I think, I think the AWA was the one that really needed the most of the three. That's my answer. Steve Crawford, what do you think? 
It's it, it's a really interesting question, and yeah, it just depends on your point of view of it. So yeah, if you could put the belt on Hogan and he takes it, then then you know the entire story of wrestling history in the eighties might be different, Absolutely. right? So so that's something you have to take into consideration. I definitely think Harley needed to have the belt taken off of him, and they did that. Uh, I think. Backlund needed again. I mean, all these things changed pretty quickly. I mean, Bachwinkle is the guy they went back to, but but the you know they were fishing in smaller and smaller ponds as each year went by because you know their fan base was just shrinking and the number of cities they ran could run was just shrinking. So I, I don't know that I have a definitive answer on this. I guess it depends on if you're running the promotion. You know, what do you think is you know most needed for your promotion, but the AWA did die the fastest. And, and so I, I think Steve's got a good point there. I mean, in summer 83, I was tired of all three guys. And again, I will acknowledge the AWA was drawing great with Bachwinkle. WWF was drawing great with Backland. The NWA, I mean, it's not Harley Race's credit or fault that, you know, some promotions like Georgia and Florida were seeing down years, quite frankly. You know, they, I mean, they had other issues besides who the NWA champion was. Uh, I would say, you know, Harley Race, I understand now. I, I've said this earlier. I understand now why he was the best choice. But without knowing that Flair was getting the title back at, at Thanksgiving, I mean, you know, without that, I thought Race was a horrible choice. But <laughs> so basically, I think it all worked out for all three guys. They were all getting very stale at the top, but they weren't going to be on top much longer. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, really. All right. Is it is it my turn already? Yes. Okay. God, this hour goes by so quick. I just looked at the time. Justin Brown asks, what was it like when the Wild Samoans added Samu as Samoan number three? Did it breathe new life into the team, or was it clearly the beginning of the end? All right. Justin, I can share this. In 1983, I'm at the Boston Garden, and we've already had a long show with a lot of matches, and then they come out with Johnny Rods against Samoan number three. (laughs) <laughs> and the place goes crazy. Samoan number three, what? Because he hadn't been on TV yet. And now we're like, oh, wow, there's three Samoans now, huh? And I would have liked the idea, except two years ago, we had three moon dogs. When uh, Sailor White was having visa problems from Canada, you know, they had to bring in a third Moondog. In 1979, we had three Valiant brothers. Uh, Jerry was brought in when Jimmy got sick with hepatitis, I think it was. So, uh, you know, we had already seen the three-man tag team uh, to the point where we didn't need to see another one. But what are you going to do? Sika broke his hip. So, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'm not complaining about it. I'm just saying that, you know, I, I know it happened for a reason. They all happened for a reason, but it was happening too much. Also, it, he, he asked, you know, did it breathe new life into the team? Or was it clearly the beginning of the end when the way the WWF worked is you had a heel team come in and they won the titles and then they lost the titles and, you know, the whole, and, and then they left. The whole thing was a cycle over like nine or ten months. And it looked like the Samoans were just going to, you know, do what every heel team before them did. Steve, you followed uh, Steve Generelli. You followed the WWF. What were your thoughts on the new Samoan? It 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 just seemed, uh, even though you know, I assumed at the time he was like a relative or a, a cousin or a son or a brother. I, I don't know what he was, but it it, it didn't. It, he really didn't add much. I mean, he just he just felt like a 
you know, a replacement of some sort. I mean, in retrospect, I do give them credit that uh, while the often seek as a team maybe had like a year or two left in them and, and they were on the beginning of their way out of the business, the way that they uh, ended up having like all these different, uh, you know, sons and people come into the business like, uh, um, like uh, Rikishi, Rikishi or, or Umaga, uh, The Rock, Roman Reigns. I mean, th- that's unprecedented. I mean, to have this huge, uh, you know, really, truly the bloodline, uh, to have that emerge out of virtually nowhere, uh, you know, what emerged out of the Samoan family, of course, uh, uh, that is very impressive that you know, other wrestling families try to do stuff like that, maybe didn't really accomplish that. But, uh, yeah, I, I'd say it was just about the end of, of the act of the Samoans. They did last another year or two, basically, but then it was over with, and we had to wait another five years before the uh, Samoan SWAT team kind of emerged. Yeah, I mean, when the Samoans, you know, Pro Wrestling USA made a big deal about, you know, we're bringing the Samoans in, like, I was kind of like, yeah, they're just a tag team. It doesn't matter. And I've seen enough of the Samoans, like, in you know, between ni- their run in 1980 and their run in 1983. Uh, Steve Crawford, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I didn't think that it added a lot to the to the team. I, I, I thought it, it I th- I thought it made the team kind of less special in a way. Yeah, know, watered it, it down. Got, yeah, yeah. You've got these two guys with this really unique look and really unique style, and then you throw somebody else in the mix, and I, and I think it just makes it less special. Uh, so I, I always liked the Samoans. I thought they were, you know, they, they looked like legitimate, tough, scary guys, and, and I thought they were a good tag team, but I, I didn't think that added anything to help the team. No, I, I agree. And again, I understand they had to bring them in because Sika got hurt and, you know, they did what they needed to do, but, you know, sometimes doing what you need to do is it takes a step down in quality. All right. One last question from Steve Crawford. Well, let's see, what do we want to do for our final question? Uh, we have, we have a question about if there'd been a Crockett cup in 1983 and we'll have to decide how we want to approach this. So, the question from Michael Holsey, I'm probably saying that wrong. If they started the Crockett Cup in 1983, which teams would you like to see compete? 1986 format, so all territories are eligible. So I'll, I'll name one or two tag teams because I could, you know, you could list 20 tag teams if you wanted to. But I, 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 I like the idea of bringing in tag teams from other territories. I think it made it feel like a bigger event. It made it feel special. It, it, it gave the, the, the territory guys a chance to, to kind of shine on a national stage. Usually most of the teams were protected pretty well. They could always do DQs or double countouts or something. So the guys didn't have to go and, and do a job and then go back home. Uh, so since I'm a Memphis guy, I would start with the, uh, the fabulous ones. And then, you know, in terms of who would be interesting to see in a Crockett cup, I thought about, uh, maybe taking a couple of guys from the Pacific Northwest, like Buddy Rose and Rip Oliver and giving them a chance to work with, with somebody on that national stage. Cause those guys I think could work with anybody and done a really good job. So that was, that was a couple that came to my mind. Uh, Steve generally, your thoughts. Yeah, I, I had uh, a list of some teams that should participate too. Um, I, I definitely would have uh, the Rat Pack on there. Uh, DBC and uh, uh, Matt Bourne would be uh, included. Uh, from Portland, I had Rip Oliver and Buddy Rose, uh, the High Flyers, uh, Donis and Ventura, uh, and the Samoans, and of course all the JCP teams. So uh, you know, a lot of a lot of great choices there. 
you know, the funny thing about fantasy booking is that everyone just does whatever you want them to do, and that's not how it works in real wrestling. One team that I absolutely would have loved to bring in is Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody. And, you know, the problem with them is, you know, not only don't they want to do jobs, they don't want to sell for anybody. Um, but, you know, once again, if I'm fantasy booking, I'm definitely bringing them in. Uh, I am definitely bringing in uh, Ted DiBiase and Matt Bourne, like Steve said. I want to absolutely bring in the Road Warriors, have David and Kevin, the two oldest Von Erichs, team up, and then have Kerry team up with either Chris Adams or Iceman. I think it would have been a fun thing to do had had someone thought of it and, you know, had there been a, a certain amount of cooperation. But, you know, I pointed out Hanson and Brody, they're not doing jobs. Well, the Von Erichs aren't doing jobs either. So this is good. And need, probably neither are the Road Warriors. So this is going to be a tough one. But again, as a, a fantasy book, thing it sounds like a lot of fun steve generally your last question i'm gonna go with larry conger's question he's asking if the nwa territories used wcw on tbs like vince used all american would that have changed the landscape of the 84 takeover you can get gordon talking about don owens and portland flair would talk about top contenders and other territories like carrie von eric if they sent top stars and tapes and occasionally can wcw send some top matches out to big shows like they did with Southwest, it could build national stars. Uh, to my answer to that, I think if you had Gordon Soley or maybe even a very young Jim Ross there to host a this week in the NWA type show where they, you know, did all that, uh, you know, had all the, you know, let's take you to Portland, let's take you to St. Louis, let's take you to all these different cities. It may have really been like, uh, you know, kind of a, a fanboy's wet dream of uh, you know, the perfect wrestling show where you're seeing all these different territories. But, you know, I think sadly the reality is, is that uh, it probably wouldn't have made one, one damn bit of difference as far as, you know, uh, making the NWA more viable or making things last. It, you'd still have those same problems about the each promoter trying to steal talent from each other and, um, I think it would have that part of it would have flopped. Uh, so sadly, uh, in, in, on paper it sounds great, but in reality, I don't think it would have worked. I have a lot to say on this, but I want to go to Steve Crawford first. Steve, what do you think? Yeah, it's it's like you know who's paying for this television time, and or they are they taking television time away from somebody else to do this? So there's this business aspect of it in terms of being yeah, it'd be a great television show if you showed highlight matches from, from all the promotions all over the country. Uh, but, but I don't know how that really helps you in the long run. I, it, you know, it, we, we talk about the NWA as being one entity, but really, you know, every promoter is out for themselves in the long run. And, and certainly in 1983 with, with the change in landscape of wrestling. So I agree with Steve, it, it wouldn't have made any difference. It could have been entertaining television, but from a business standpoint, I don't know really who funds it and who decides who gets on it. Well, a couple of things. Um, number one, we about 40 years ago in 1986, we had a big mall open here in Nashville, New Hampshire, right? And everyone was all excited. We've got a mall now, right? <laughs> and the mall, obviously, like all malls, is not doing well. And I know someone who manages a store at that mall maybe five years ago. And he's like, what happens is people come in and they look at our stuff and then they go order it on Amazon. It's like, I'm a giant showcase here and that no one wants to buy stuff. And I think that's exactly what would have happened had 
the NWA had a show like that. It would have been just a showcase for all of the guys that Vince wants to eventually sign. Um, also, they had something similar to this. It, I mean, it wasn't on national cable. It was Joe Pedicino's, you know, pro wrestling this week. And I liked the show, but it had zero impact on the business. Um, and I think it would have had zero impact on the business had it been on national cable. And, and finally, one of the things that made the territories work is the fact that unless you were a mega super fan like myself, like like both Steves who bought magazines, you know, I'm not going to stop watching wrestling because of something I read in the magazine. All you know is what's going on in your territory. Like if you're just a casual fan, you don't know that that you know Dusty Rhodes did the Midnight Rider gimmick and. Or, or excuse me, that, you know, Dusty Rhodes, yeah, Dusty Rhodes did the Midnight Rider gimmick, and guess what? Uh, Stagger Lee is just a copy of that gimmick, and Charlie Brown is just a copy of that gimmick. You know, you don't know these things. You had Jimmy Garvin and, and Sunshine do their act in world class. Well, guess what? Pretty soon, every promotion has a guy with a valet, and then pretty soon the valet turns babyface and is feuding with another valet. You're not <laughs> supposed to know that the other promotions are, are copying each other so like steve generelli said you know it, it's a great concept i would have loved seeing something like that but at the end of the day it doesn't matter as a matter of fact when vince mcmahon had his uh had all american wrestling at first and was showing matches from florida mid-south etc that really had no impact either all right, we'll wrap this up with Scotty Grace's question. What one territory would you have wanted to watch that you didn't get on TV? My personal choice would have been Memphis, reading about Lawler, Fabulous Ones, Austin Idol, and so many others. It looked wild and awesome show to watch. Steve Crawford, it, it's summer 1983. It's, it's July 17th, 1983, and you, ha- you get to choose which wrestling show you now have access to that you don't already have access to. Steve, summer of 83, what did you have access to? Well, uh, we had uh, obviously Memphis wrestling because I grew up in Northeast Arkansas. We had Georgia Championship Wrestling, uh, Southwest on cable, WWF on cable. Um, Those are the primary ones. Uh, We did have ICW for a while when they were on the Memphis Television uh, Independent Station. Uh, so, So we had that as well. Uh, growing up where I did, it was, it was interesting because Mid-South ran in Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, we were not in the Little Rock market, television market where I lived. Uh, so I never got to see Mid-South television until about 1987-ish when I, when I moved back uh, to the state after I'd been away for a few years. So, you know, I was reading all about the Junkyard Dog. I knew about Ted DiBiase. Um, you know, they're running in the same state that I'm living in. And, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that, you know, I wasn't a smart fan back then, you know, I wasn't reading the observer. So I didn't know the, the insider buzz about Mid-South wrestling at the time, if there was any, but that's certainly a promotion I would have liked to have seen because it was like my next door neighbor that I couldn't see. Yes. (laughs) All right. Steve Generelli, what, what promotions were you getting and which was the one you you would have wanted to add to that, that, that collection? 
I think in 1983, uh, sadly, uh, WWF was all we had, I think, in Binghamton, New York uh, at wow. that time. Yeah, yeah, we wouldn't get uh, TBS for about three more years. And uh, uh, but, but I will say, you know, by 86, we were getting all the promotions pretty much. I mean, we had UWF, we had NWA, AWA, uh, so a whole bunch. But, um, but yeah, I mean, if it was my choice back then, I probably would have gone with one of the larger promotions probably um crockett or georgia but uh if you're asking me now uh you know with, with what i know now i mean i i there's something about portland wrestling i just just find really fascinating i really like it uh it's kind of goofy you know i like Port- Port- portlandia the tv show i've been to portland i i think i i would have enjoyed that show watching it every week they had a really hot 1983 because they t- turned Buddy Rose babyface. They brought in Dynamite Kid. They brought in Dr. D. David Schultz. I mean, they had some good stuff going on in Portland that year. Yeah, I would have enjoyed that. Uh, I mean, not to down uh, put down the other promotions, but I think Portland would have been, you know, kind of small enough to just enjoy the quirkiness and the the how how small and minor league it truly was. I, I can see that. I got, in 1983, I got the WWF, of course. I got uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling on WTBS. I got Southwest Championship Wrestling on USA Network. And I believe that's it, unless I'm forgetting something. If I am, it's, it's very small UHF wrestling. I think uh, Kowalski's uh, IWF was off the air. I, I definitely was off the air by 1983. So out of all the promotions, not knowing what I know now, I, I've, you know, if someone asked me this 40 years ago, the choice would have been either Mid-South Wrestling or Florida Championship Wrestling. And I would have gone with Florida because I saw them as having more star power at the time. Now, knowing what I know, that Florida was kind of having a rough 1983, I definitely would have gone with Mid-South Wrestling uh, to pop up on a UHF station somewhere in Boston. So, And now I can watch all of that stuff anytime I want on Peacock. So life is good. Steve Crawford, thank you for taking the time. It had been too long since we had you on. Always a pleasure to be on Stick to Wrestling, my my favorite podcast. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Steve Generelli, thank you for taking the time on this evening. Oh, it was great to be here and great to meet Steve Crawford, who was a great guest with us. Oh, absolutely. And I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work that he does. I want to thank, most importantly, I want to thank everyone for listening. I hope you enjoy this hour every week, and hopefully we'll have another strong one next week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.